Amen. So tonight we're going to talk a little bit about why we don't wonder. Why we don't wonder. I, I want you to sort of think with me for a second about how, you know, if you've ever taken a child uh, for the first time to the zoo and you've looked in their eyes, when, because it's, it's one thing to uh, read books about animals and to hear stories about animals or to see movies or TV or whatever the case may be. But when you take a child to the zoo for the first time and they see a lion or a gorilla or a giraffe for the first time and the look in their eyes of just total amazement and wonder at, wow, look at what they're seeing. And it's what's crazy about it is, is that as you're standing there, taking in their countenance and expression. There's countless people walking by. Just another day. It's just another thing. It's no big deal. Uh, sometimes you'll be at the zoo, and there'll be a field trip of older kids, maybe even fifth, sixth, seventh grade, and they're walking through the zoo, and they don't care. They don't, it's no big deal. It's just some animals. And, you know, and you're just going, what happened? What happened? Uh, this, this message tonight is it's kind of the, the Cayley sermon. My life has, is, uh, you know, been reacquainted with things that it got disassociated with. Uh, for some years, and so I'm, I'm back in this discovery phase where it's really impacting uh, a lot of things in my life. You know, she, this past year, um, you know, everything that uh, Lisa and I are able to do uh, for my kids um, is, it's just a blessing, and it's an, it's a privilege, um, but it's, it's always things they've never done before, never even imagine and uh, you know they went to Disney World this last year and that just blew their mind it was just like just overload just unbelievable they just couldn't believe what was happening you see they're, they're especially Kaylee she reacquaints me with wonder and she reminds me of things that I have a tendency to forget. See, when I, when I come home or when we walk into the house, when we walk out there, it doesn't really matter where we go. It, honestly, with Kaylee, it doesn't matter where we go. We get out of the car, and when I get out of the car, I'm fixated on whatever I've got in my arms and going in the house and putting it there and the so on and so forth. But Kaylee, on the other hand, will... She'll grab my hand and stop me dead in my tracks. It doesn't matter what I'm doing, how busy I am. She's oblivious of that. She says, Dad, look at the new flower. And I'm like, what new flower? And she's like, the one right over there. See over there? Kind of tucked away out of the way. That, that's new. That wasn't there yesterday. Come here. Let's go look at it. Now? Yeah, she's dragging my arm, so you just drop what you're doing. You go over there. Now, you don't just go over there and go, oh, look, it's a flower. No, no, you have to look at the flower. You have to get your face down and go. And she's like, Dad, the color changes when it goes on the inside. Do you see on the inside how on the inside it is? And do you see how there's all these little specks and spots in there? Do you see how it's, it's all... And she sees how God put it all together, and she notices that, and she knows that that flower wasn't there yesterday. She knows that. She stops me all the time and says, Dad, or maybe I'll just come into the, I'll just come home. And uh, I'll, I'll come home late when I walk in the house. Um, she'll say, Dad, did you see the moon? Uh... No. Well, why? Come here. You've got to see this. Walk outside. Look, look, look at the moon. 
And so now I just stand there and look at the moon with her. I notice every sunset, every sunset. Partially because I know she's going to quiz me, but partially because now I notice it. She noticed all the colors. She, she notices all the things, that, the little things that God does the, in the ordinary. She is, her little heart is so filled with wonder. It's amazing. Now, if you were to, you couldn't do it tomorrow because school's out. But um, when school's in, if you go to a school, because trust me, I've spent thousands of hours in public schools. If you go to the school Kelly works at and you go into a second grade class or a third grade class and you walk in there and, and uh, you ask all the students, you say, what? hey, let's go around the room and I want everybody to everybody tell me what you want to be when you grow up. And they're going to say things like, I, I want to be a scientist. I want to be an astronaut. I want to be president. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a veterinarian. I want to be... They have dreams. Those same kids, by about sixth grade, you go in the room and you say, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you're going to hear things like, uh, I, I want to... I'm hoping I could work where my dad works. Um, I want to, I just want to be happy. Or I want to be able to buy a new truck. Or those same kids, when they're seniors in high school, the dreams have pretty much fizzled completely out. Now it's, uh, for a lot of them, it's just I want to graduate. I'm just trying to, I want a part-time job. Now, here's my question for you. Clearly, God created us to wonder because little children naturally do that. Okay? You going to agree with me? All right. So, here's my question. So did God design that wonder to fade away and die, or did he create that to stay? So what happens? Why? And I'm just determined the second go-round, I'm hanging on to it with everything I got. Like, I don't ever want it to change. Every little second is priceless. But see, here's what happens. Over time, in this broken world, we lose our wonder. We just stop wondering. And it's uh, complex. Uh, believe me, I've thought a lot about it. And that would take us hours upon hours. But it's very complex. But it's just a barrage of so many things that overwhelm us and overtake us. It just, that it just kills our dreams. It kills our, our, our hopes. Listen, if you, uh, it, I don't know if you've noticed this or not. But we live in a world that has an absolute epidemic shortage of creativity. No one can seem to have an original thought anymore. The only thing anyone can do is just redo something someone else did. There's no creativity. It's dead. It's just gone. We, you, it's unbelievable. What happened? What happened? Well, this is my, um, uh, this is my thesis about this whole thing. I think there's two devastating reasons. First of all, we become disinterested. We become jaded. You know why? Because we think we've seen it all before. We think we've done it all before. We think, oh, well, who cares? There's nothing new. It's the same old thing. And so 
We just overlook it because we don't think there's anything there. We're just disinterested. And the second reason is because we're distracted. Nobody has time. You see, it, it takes time to, to, to wonder. you got to be still. You can't be in a rush to wonder. you got to slow down. And you got to put some things on hold. And you got to shove some things out of your way. And you just got to rest in, in a moment and think about things that, you know, aren't clamoring for your attention and aren't, you, you just have to give it. Disinterested and distracted. That's the devastating reasons that are killing us. So uh, there's a lot of places in Scripture I could use to have this conversation, but we're going to look at Exodus chapter 3. So the first thing I want you to see is God's proximity. And it's very important when you think about wonder that you got to understand the proximity of God and what God tells us about His proximity. Exodus 3, verse 1, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert, and he came to Oreb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame and a fire from the midst of the bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Now, you know the backstory. You know that Moses was an orphan, placed in a basket, sent down a river, scooped up by Pharaoh's daughter, Raised in the palace, all of his childhood memories were memories of palace life. He was a foster child, that's what he was. And he, he was an Israelite who was raised in a foreign land by a foreign people in a foreign culture. And there was a sequence of events in his life, but the one that precipitated this moment was because he saw a man brutalizing one of his countrymen. And he couldn't, he couldn't contain himself at the injustice that was before him. So he intervened, and in, in doing so, he got into a physical confrontation with this man and ultimately killed him. And so he had to flee. So now he's a fugitive on the run, and he's in the wilderness of Midian. It was harsh events and circumstances that led him to the wilderness. He didn't go to the wilderness to take a hiatus or a rest or a sabbatical. He went to the wilderness to escape punishment as a wanted fugitive. But he's in the wilderness nonetheless, which is how he ends up with Jethro tending the flock, his father-in-law's flock, out in the middle of nowhere. Midian is the epitome of nowhere. Now, I know a lot about being in the wilderness, both spiritually and physically, but physically, I know a whole lot about being in the wilderness because I purposely put myself in the wilderness. The way I survive uh, this vocation is by going into the wilderness. And I can go out into the uh, wilderness. I can start hiking through the mountains for four days or six days or ten days with a backpack on my own with no cell service, no just living out of my backpack, filtering water out of a stream, sleeping in a hammock. And I can find myself again. I can ground myself again. I get reacquainted with who I am and my purpose and my meaning and my being. It's what brings me back to where I need to be. And I know a whole lot about the wilderness. And I know a whole lot about what the wilderness teaches you. And here's a couple things that I want you to consider. First of all, when you're in the wilderness, you see things that few people have ever seen. You see, because a lot of people don't go into the wilderness, they avoid the wilderness. They look at the wilderness as something that you don't ever want to deal with or go to. It's too, it's too hard. It's too unknown. It's too scary. It's too dangerous. It's too... Which doesn't make any sense to me because as much as that doesn't make any sense to some people, it doesn't make any sense to me why you wouldn't embrace it and want it and receive all that it can give you. But you get to see things that few people have ever seen. 
You see, it wouldn't be uncommon for me to spend all day climbing up a mountain the whole entire day trying to get to one place on the side of one mountain to be able to stand on one rock and to be able to look off into the distance all day to get there and to try to time it at a certain time where I'd get there just as the sun was starting to you know, creep down over the horizon. And as I stand there and take that in and think about the God who made all that I'm seeing and realizing how few people have ever seen the things that I'm seeing. But then also there's nothing to distract you, see. Because all of my to-do lists and all my unanswered emails and all my 14 million phone calls that I need to make back and so on and so forth, they're not with me. They're not there. And if there was, by some horrible turn of events, if there was some way in which uh, they built cell phone towers on the Appalachian Trail, I'd have to go somewhere else and do something else because it would do me absolutely no good to be there. The point is to be disconnected. Because the only way I can wonder is to disconnect myself. See, there's nothing there to distract you. Now, here's the problem. The problem is when we read this story in Exodus 3, it's too familiar. So we just back read all the things that we already know about the story. And in doing so, it's just like the Christmas story this morning. You just miss everything. You miss it. You can't do that. The biggest mistake people make with Scripture is they just, they just read as if they already know what's coming. You can't do that. You have to force yourself to just stop, say a lot, in the, in the middle of the words and just slowly move through the sentence and feel what's happening as if you'd never seen it or heard it before. So there he is in the wilderness. Now, this day, in this text, what's important for you to understand is that this is an ordinary day. There's nothing special about this day. It's not his birthday. It's not a high holy day. It's not a, it's not a Sabbath day. It's a no day. It's a Tuesday. It's just a normal Tuesday when you're doing what you do every Tuesday. It's just another day that's just like every other day. There's nothing special about it. It's just an ordinary, average, uneventful, nothing extraordinary day in the life of Moses. He's going through the motions. It is so important for you to understand that. God did not bring this moment into Moses' life on any special occasion whatsoever for a reason. Because he wants us to understand this principle. He wants us to ask questions that this causes us to ask. See, here's my questions. My questions are, so if it's true what the Bible says about those who belong to Christ, the saved possess the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible says. And they don't possess uh, just a, a portion of the Holy Spirit. They possess all the Holy Spirit that they're ever going to have. The minute they're justified, you receive the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 1 that His divine power has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. So you, you possess that. So here we are in a country that's overflowing with people that profess Jesus as their Lord and Savior and churches on every corner with people in there, again, professing Jesus as their Lord and Savior, who then in theory would possess this Holy Spirit, who then in theory 
the first Peter chapter 1 verse 3 would apply to them that his divine power has implanted in them and given them everything that pertains to life and godliness. Now all of these things are what the Bible just sees as matter of fact reality. But my question for you is if all of this is true, then why is it that we see so few people making a difference, making an impact for the cause of Christ? How is it that people who claim Jesus as Lord, all of God's children are equal at the foot of the cross. In other words, every saved son and daughter of God has unlimited potential in God. Do you disagree with that? Listen, there's no super special, extra, wonderful. No, he doesn't love some children more than other children. His children are equally loved. They're gifted and called and equipped to make a difference for the glory of God in a dark and dying world. What is wrong? Why is it that when someone actually uses what God's given them, it's seen as remarkable? Shouldn't it just be the norm Isn't that what should be going on all over the kingdom of God? What is is the issue? Well, obviously I'm going to give you my opinion, so here we go. God knows that most people wish that he would use them, but few are willing to allow him to do so. You see, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, a volcano brewing inside of me about this issue. Maybe there'll be a, a sermon about it a month from now or two months from now or two years from now. But for weeks I've been walking around thinking about this. Do you realize the difference between wishing and willing? Like it is as far as the east is from the west. A lot of people think that that's basically the same thing when it couldn't be further from the truth. Listen, everyone wishes. It's useless to wish. What God wants is willing. Willing. The world is filled with people that wish God would do this and wish God would do that, but they're not willing. They're not willing. And I think it's all connected to this issue of wonder. So look at verse 3. Then Moses said, look at this. It's amazing. Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight. Why this bush does not burn. Hey, Dad. Look. What is that over there sparkling? What is that? Come on, we got to go see that. Well, no, honey, we're in a hurry. We got to, no, no, look, there's something over there sparkling, and we got to go, we got to go look at this right now. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. You know what, somebody who's wishing God would... Oh, let me tell you something. That little path in the middle of nowhere in Midian, it could have had a thousand people a day walk that path. And every person wishing that God would do something. You know, I just wish God would show me His will. I just wish God would would just fix this problem. I just wish God would do this. I wish God would do that. And every one of them walked right past that. Never saw a thing. But when somebody who's willing sees it, you know what happens? They wonder, hmm. And they walk over. Now, I want you to see very clearly how God doesn't force himself on Moses. God doesn't force himself on Moses. God didn't say, hey, Moses, come here. 
Come look at this bush. Come see what's happening over here. God didn't put a, uh, you know, a giant. It doesn't say Moses is tending the sheep and suddenly he heard a loud quake. And then he looked to the side and there was something over there. It doesn't say any of this. You know what God did? He discreetly and intentionally put something in the path of his servant to see if he was willing. To cause him to wonder. He didn't force himself on him at all. Here's what God did. God just gave him an opportunity. It's just an opportunity to wonder. You notice God doesn't say anything to Moses until Moses goes over and investigates. Moses sees it. God hasn't said a word. Nothing's changed. It's when Moses wonders that initiates the power and blessing of God in his life. You see, this is the thing. It's so easy to fall into the trap of failure or the trap of the ordinary, the trap of apathy. It's so easy to just go in the motions. You're just going ring around the rosy day after day after day. And you see, this isn't about trying to conjure up within you some internal fortitude to make every day exciting and new and, and great. That's, you're just completely missing the point if that's what you think I'm talking about. And I know a lot of people hear that and try to do that, and it's just a total waste of time. That has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, listen, I have a whole lot of days that stink And at the end of the day, it was horrible. And I can't wait to get to the next day because I don't want another day like that. But let me tell you what. I want to wake up every morning and I want to have a heart willing to wonder at whatever God puts in my path. I want to just have a, a heart willing to look and see if there's anything flickering, if there's any little bush around that's not burning up, just being willing to see it. I want to slow down. I want to be in the moment. I want to try to live in the moment that God puts me in. That's not natural for me. See, so often, I believe God is he's waiting for us to simply open our eyes and pay attention. It's right there. It's right there. This isn't God telling you something that, that he did in this special person's life, in this, in this one magnanimous moment. I mean, this isn't the description of the incarnation of Christ. This isn't the description of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That's not what we have here. Let me tell you what this is. This is the description of the most ordinary day in some loser's life who's on the run from the law in the middle of nowhere doing the most useless job you can think of who feels like the biggest failure you've ever seen in your life and God puts a bush in his life on a Tuesday afternoon that's what this is and the problem is is there's too many people claiming to possess the Holy Spirit moping around wondering how come there's no burning bush and they're all around they're all around you're just not willing to look and see Man, I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking, how many people in this moment right here, if they were in Moses' exact moment, this is what they would have done. They would have seen that bush over there, and they would have thought, now what in the world is that? I should go over there and see that. And then they go, no, because you know what? i got to have these sheep back by six. I mean, if I don't get these sheep back, Jethro's going to be upset with me. Like, I'm going to throw my whole day off. I mean, I wonder what maybe it could be, but I mean, uh, you know, it's... Because I'm on a schedule, because I got a routine, because I got commitments to make. I know. You're judging me. See, you don't live in my world, do you? Huh? You don't wake up with more things to do than you have time in the day to do it. 
Yeah, you do. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You know exactly what it's like. And you know that even as you start trying to whittle through all the things you got to do, more things are coming in as you're going. And it's just not ever going to stop. It's not ever going to end. And if you take a day off, you're going to have to double up the next day. Yeah. And let me tell you something. You won't ever see a burning bush like that. It'll never happen. Never. You're going to spend the rest of your life wishing. Quickly, four common ways. It's probably four sermons right here. But these four common ways. I just want to, you see, I really was struggling with this because I didn't, what I don't want to do is I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to make this programmatic. I hate programs. I don't want, I don't want to give, I'm not giving you a formula, okay? I'm just trying to help you to see. I just want to give you four examples, all right? Don't turn this into some formula. This isn't an exhaustive list. I'm just giving you four illustrations to get you to to start to understand what I'm talking about, okay? Number one, four common ways that God puts opportunities before us, burning bushes before us. An inexplicable person. You're going through life on an ordinary day, and suddenly... There's a person that is in your path saying something to you or doing something to you or functioning in some way that is inexplicable to you. I'm trying to do this really quickly, but I want to give you an illustration. When when God first called me into the ministry, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have any experience. I didn't grow up in church. I mean, if ever there was somebody who was the wrong person doing a job, it was me. I mean, I was was just clueless, and I felt so unworthy and useless and I mean I'm like this is going to be the biggest failure in the world and so I'm sitting there it's like the first day I show up to church I'm I'm working part-time here and you know it's I got little kids at home and I'm making like $200 a week and I don't we're going to be all I can think about is well we're going to be eating ramen noodles for the rest of my life and I mean you know it's just bad and I'm sitting in this office, and I got these two bookshelves behind me, and there's not a single book on any, either bookshelf. I got a, this old gateway computer, that's how old I am, that had a monitor that weighed about 8 million pounds, and I'm just sitting there, but I don't even have any software. I don't, I don't even have anything to work on if I had, but I have a Bible. That's all I got, a desk, a chair, a Bible, empty bookshelves, and an old gateway computer. That's my life. Four walls, there's no pictures, there's nothing. I'm just sitting there staring at the walls. And it dawns on me, I'm thinking now. So I just go to the basics. I just say, now, okay. I open up my Bible. And I start reading the Bible. And I'm like, now, God, you called me to reach teenagers. And I'm sitting in this dumb office, and there ain't a teenager in here. Now, this isn't working very well because, and not only that, I mean, what am I going to do all week? All the teenagers are in school. So how am I going to reach teenagers? And so I don't have the answer. I mean, I don't know. I don't have a budget. I don't have any money. I don't know anybody. I mean, I I only have little kids. I don't even know anything about teenagers. So I just started praying. I'm like, God, if you want me to reach teenagers, I'm willing. I want to reach them. I'm scared, but I'll do it. But you got to, you got to, Get me there. You got to show me how to do it because I don't even know what I'm doing. I'm literally sitting in my desk having this conversation with God, and somebody knocks on my door, and I'm like, Come in. And this guy I've never seen before, he goes, Is your name Tony? I'm like, Uh huh. He goes, Well, my name's Peter Dabbs, and I'm with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And uh, I was wondering if you wanted to ride with me to the high school because I'm looking for somebody to get involved at the high school. Okay. So I get in a car with a man I never met, drive to a high school I've never been to. I didn't even know where Harrison Central was. I never knew. How would I know? I didn't grow up. I, don't, I didn't go there. I, don't, I got little kids. I didn't even know where it was. The first time I ever went to the high school was with him. I drive up to the high school. He walks me in, walks me into the field house, introduced me to the head football coach. The head football coach says, hey, I'm looking for somebody to uh, be the chaplain for the football team. Are you interested? Uh, okay, I'll do it. Next thing I know, I got a full-blown school ministry in one, in one day. Inexplicable 
people. Now, what if he would have showed up at my door and I would have said, well, hmm. Now, who are you again? And what are you? you look, did you? Th- I did. I'm like, let's go. The minute he, I'm like, let's go. Number two, what about an inexplicable train of thought? What about that? What happens when all of a sudden you start to think something? This happens all the time around here. People come up to me and they say, Brother Tony, uh, listen, uh, I've just been thinking about something, and um, this is what I think God wants me to do. And then they proceed to tell me something that is completely insane. No sane person would do that. I remember, I remember the time Jeff York came to me, and he said, uh, I think God's calling me to start a, a, a recovery ministry, a, some kind of a, a, a bridge, a, a transitional home for men. I said, uh-huh. You ever done anything like that? Nope. You got any experience doing that? Nope. So, but you feel like God's calling you to do that? I really feel like that. Well, so do you have any money? Uh-uh. So you work every day? Correct. So how are you going to do that and work? I don't know. So I said, well, you got a house, don't you? And he said, yeah. I said, well, use what you got and see what God does. Two months later, he comes back in my office. He goes, well, I'm out of room. I got a guy on the couch. I got mattresses all over the floor. My wife can't even open the door because there's mattresses everywhere. I got all these guys sleeping in my house. And then he comes to me a year after that, and he says, I think it's time to quit my job. I said, Jeff, you quit your job. How how are you going to live? He goes, I don't know, but I think I need to quit my job. I said, okay, what's your hesitation? He goes, if I quit my job, I'm going to lose all my retirement. I said, yeah, that's going to be painful. He said, well, I don't know what to do. And I said, well, let me explain it to you. It's very simple. If you want to have a transitional home, you have to quit your job. Now, if you don't quit your job, then you'll have a job, but you won't have a transitional home. So what's going to be harder, to live without a job or to live without what you feel like God's called me to do? The next day, he went to work and quit his job. See, that's an inexplicable train of thought. People, that happens around here all the time. People come up to me and say, here's what I'm thinking, and they proceed to tell me the most insane idea of self-sacrifice on behalf of somebody else with no personal gain for them. And I go, yeah, sounds like you're on the right track. Well, I thought I was crazy. Mm -mm. You're actually the most sane person I've talked to today. It's an inexplicable train of thought. What about inexplicable trouble? Uh, Some of you remember uh, a decade ago when I was preaching through the Gospel of Luke. That's how long ago this was. So one Sunday morning I get up and uh, there was a couple that this young man had had grown up in the youth ministry. And the whole time I had known him as he was going through school, uh, he used to say, you know, pray for my parents. Nobody in my family goes to church. I'm the only believer in my household. And so I knew him all the way through school. He was here, but I never met his parents. They never came to church one time, never, wouldn't have anything to do with it. And he would always ask me to pray for him, pray for him. Well, he grew up and graduated and moved on and got a job and all that. And guess what? His parents came into my life. And they started, you know, opening up to coming to church and this, that, and the other. And so one Sunday morning, I'm up here. It's just a regular Sunday morning in the Gospel of Luke. Just so happened they were sitting right there. Right there, third pew, right there on the end. Husband and wife. So the text that day just happened to be the parable in the Gospel of Luke about Jesus coming up on a funeral where a child had just died. And the dad's just devastated because his child's dead. And Jesus interrupts the funeral and brings hope back into the situation. You know the story? So I'm preaching on that very thing. They're sitting right there. I'm so excited. They're in church. They hear the Gospel. It's amazing. So that night, they call me, distraught. I said, what's, what, what's happened? Our daughter got murdered tonight. It was a horrible, brutal, senseless murder. 
today. I'm driving over to their house and I'm literally going, God, how could this happen? I mean, what am I even going to say? Like, they probably hate my guts. I mean, this is so insane. Like, they finally come to church. I preach about a kid's funeral, and then this happens. And I'm thinking about all the things I said that morning, and I'm like going, ee. and so I get to the house. I walk in, and they just come at me and just fall, and they're crying on my, in my arms, and they're just bawling their head off, and they're saying, we just are so thankful and so grateful. We can see how God led us this morning to hear everything that you said and how it's comforted. Well, I mean, it was horrible and they were distraught, but the point is that they could see the hand of God in their circumstances. And I was just like, wow. It's inexplicable trouble. What about inexplicable emptiness? It's part of so many of our stories. You work all your life and you, you, you are so devoted and dedicated and you think you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna store up, you're going to fill your barns with all your junk and you're going to do all your things and get your 401k set and have all your insurance in place and have all your things together and blah, 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 blah. blah. And you know what happens? You finally get the things you've been working all your life for and you're empty. They ain't worth nothing. They don't bring you any joy. In fact, you, you realize you're a slave to them. And all they're doing is dragging you down. It happens all the time. And you're like, what's wrong with me? I finally, I finally got what I want and I'm, I'm empty. It's inexplicable emptiness. You fulfilled your dreams and they didn't do anything. So God's proximity. Number two, God's power. We got to hurry. Verse 5. So... Then he said, God said, do not draw near to this place. Take off your sandals, for this place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and Moses. He hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. All right, so quickly, suddenly, there's this little moment where God informs, now they're, they're in Midian. God informs Moses that he's on holy ground. Take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. Now, he's in the middle of nowhere. He's in the back of the wilderness. Remember that? That's what it said. The back of the wilderness, now it's holy ground. So how did the back of the wilderness, where nobody is and nothing is, is nothing but a bunch of tumbleweeds going by, dirt and tumbleweeds, and out of nowhere, God says, oh, but you're on holy ground. The ground's not holy. God's there. And wherever God is, it becomes holy. Now, let me just tell you something. It's not by accident that all of a sudden the Bible says Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. This was a precursor of something that was going to happen a little bit later, right? There's another moment when God tries to, when Moses tries to look upon God and he has to hide himself in the cleft of a rock and he ends up glowing like a teenage mutant ninja turtle when he goes down to the bottom, right? And guess what? It's in the very same place. Because guess where Midian is? Guess where Mount Sinai is? It's in the very same place. You know where Moses is? Sinai. And you know what makes it holy? There ain't nothing holy about Mount Sinai. There's nothing special about that mountain. God was on the mountain. That's why it was holy. So what you got to realize is the only thing holy about Mount Sinai or Midian or the wilderness or anything else is that God is there. That's why it's holy. It's holy because God is there. You got that? Good, because I got a question for you. Is God in your house? Huh? When you leave here tonight, where are you going? Is God there? No, I'm not asking you if God's there now. I'm asking you, is God there when you get there? Yes. It's holy ground. Because wherever you go, guess what? God goes. Because guess who's in you? God. Remember, you're the temple. Remember that? Wherever you go, it's holy ground. So God's in your house. What about your work? 
You know, your work that you think is just the same old junk every day, mundane, Monday through Friday, here it is, same old thing, round and round we go, nothing new all the time, blah, 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 negative, time out. You forgot something. That's holy ground because you're there. So when you're there, there might be people in the desk next to you or the cubicle next to you, the building across from you or your boss or whoever it is, and they might blaspheme God or not love God or not. I don't care about any of that. But let me tell you, wherever you are, if the Spirit of God's in you, it's holy ground. So every classroom you walk into, every store you go into, wherever you go, God goes. So therefore... It's holy. And if you realize, that'll start changing the way you think about things. See, when you get home tonight, it's just not another night at home. It's not just another boring, same old thing. No. You make it that. It's holy ground because you're there. You're undercutting what's, what's the potential and the reality of where you are. Do not fall into the trap of believing God isn't in the ordinary and even dirty places. Big mistake. Big mistake. I don't care how pagan your job is or your neighborhood is or your boss is or your neighbors are or anybody else. If you are there, God is there. Which means it's holy ground. It's not just another ho-hum day. Because he's not a ho-hum God. Unless, of course, you choose to act as if he's not there. And you're not the temple. And he doesn't go everywhere you go. And then guess what? It just becomes something ho-hum. See, when a Christian's life becomes stale and boring, I I want you to... I'm trying to get under your skin, okay? Well, I'm fixing to, so just get ready. You you get in a stale, boring place. Oh, you know, nothing big's happening. Oh, you know, God's not doing anything big. I don't know. I'm just kind of, I just don't, I just hadn't been reading my Bible. My prayer life stinks. I just don't have any, uh uh-huh. You're living your life as if God isn't there. Now, you could try to frame it up and and put some ribbons on it any way you want to. The bottom line is, you're living as if God isn't there. You know something about Moses? His first instinct is to draw near even though it's not safe. See, he doesn't know what in the heck's going on. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him. It's clearly something out of the ordinary. It's clearly something, you know, uh, I'm not sure. It's not, it's not like he's, you know, read a manual about it or went to burning bush school before or anything like that. But he draws near. He moves in. He presses in. He investigates. There's fear and fascination. Wonder is an amazing, powerful thing. It is. Let me tell you something. Before I came in here tonight, I was walking down the hallway talking to Jacko about Christmas. Now, I don't know if you know anything about Jacko and Kelly, but let me tell you something. They're they're about to have themselves a Christmas a little bit different than the last few Christmases. There's going to be some wonder in that house. There's going to be some little eyes lit up. Boy, there's because you know what? There's some little hearts in there that, that, are, that look like they saw a giraffe at the zoo for the very first time. I see the smiles on their kids' faces when they're, they're hanging off Jacko like ornaments on a Christmas tree. And they got a big smile on their face. And you know what? That smile is wonder. It's wonder. Ain't there there ain't going to be no, you know, all those last Christmases. I've been there where all the teenagers are like, oh, yeah, look at that. Oh, yeah, wow, look at that. Mm, It's going to be 
It's going to be awesome. Why does that have to die? Why? How in the world? Let me tell you something. If, you're, if your spiritual life is stale and boring, you are telling God he is a liar. You are telling him the Bible is a lie. And what it says about me is not true. I don't believe it. Number three, God's purpose, his purpose. So look at verse seven, look at verse seven. So then the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good, large land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place where the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the, and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I'm, I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So here's what happens. God, listen, Moses wonders, and, and what does it expose him to? The purpose of God. The minute Moses draws in, and, and God says, now let me explain something to you. You done stepped off into this, and now you're on holy ground. And so what does God do? Say, now Moses, tell me about your day, or give me your advice, or what's your ideas, or what do you think? That's not, no. You know what happens when I draw near to God? He says, now, Tony, let me tell you what my purpose is. Now, I could have sat in my empty office all day long, and I could have prayed. Now, God, I wish you'd give me a new car, because if you gave me a new car, I'd be able to go all around and drive everywhere and do that. Or, God, if you just filled my bank account with money, I'd be able to buy gas and do all the things I think I need to do. I could have wished myself silly, and none of that had anything to do with the purpose of God. But when I sat there and said, God, I know you called me to reach teenagers, and I don't know any of them, and I don't know where they are, but you do. If you want me to reach them, and that's your purpose, you open the door. Boom, somebody's at my door. I never met him. How could you even know my name? It's inexplicable. It's the purpose of God. When you are willing to do something that's the purpose of God, you better look out because it's fixing to get wild. I didn't lay around and say, you know what, God? I'm getting a little stale. I need something to jazz me up. Maybe you could send me a little girl that would cause me to look at flowers and sunsets and notice the moon. No. I just stepped into the purpose of God. I said, God, you know what? I got love to give. I got room in my house. It's your purpose. That your people care for the fatherless, so that's what I'm going to do. And as soon as I did that, he unleashed his purposes in my life and taught me so many things along the way. See, look, God has a purpose in the world. And salvation is merely the invitation to participate. Man, I wish we could get this. I pray all the time under my breath. I say, God, just stop the clock so I could preach an extra two hours and nobody would even know it. Just, you know, freeze everybody and then unfreeze them two hours later. You stop the sun, so let's do that. But apparently it's not his purpose. So it's his purpose for me to just continually torture you. He has a purpose. Listen. Salvation is an invitation to participate. Now, I don't know. I'm not the judge of any other person's heart. But I got to wonder. I'm beginning to wonder. I'm looking around thinking to myself, now, wait a minute, God. Either one of two things is happening here. Either we got a lot of people who have received an invitation from you in salvation and said, nah, I'm good. Which, I, I, I mean, I don't understand that. I don't get that. And I'm not even going to try to theologically explain that. But either that's true or else we got a whole lot of people 
who are acting like something they ain't. Who are saying they got something they don't got. But it can only be one of those two things. Or else the world would be on fire. You understand? It would be on fire. Always remember this. Never forget this. God's purpose is always about people. See, people are always trying to tell me these big grand things about this, that, and the other. And listen, I'm not paying attention to none of that. I don't care about none of that. If it doesn't have to do with people, I'm out. I'm not interested. Because the only thing God cares about is people. That's all he cares about. And so he may, there's other things in the equation, but if the end result, if it's not about people, then God's not in it. It's just not, because that's all he's into is people. That's it. Let me, let me tell you something. You start watching. You start watching your life and the lives around you. And you, there's people sitting around you in church every Sunday morning. Man, God's doing some amazing things in their life. And you, start, you start looking for some real heartache and pain. You start looking for some shocking situations and, and, and you know, heart-wrenching scenarios. And then tune in. I guarantee you, you start watching. And you know what you're going to find out? God's using that for people. He's using what he's doing in that life that, that seems so, it is hard. But it seems so senseless until you, you wait it out. And you see how God uses that in their life to reach other people. It's always about people. Always. That's his purpose. Always. All right, number four. His promise. And here's where the train always gets off the track, right here. Everybody always reads this text right here and gets the wrong purpose. Here's the promise, number 11. But Moses said to God, well, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Remember, remember when he took his shoes off? Remember that? Okay, here we are. On this mountain. Verse 18. Then they will heed your voice, and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt. And you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now, please, let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. When we stop and we wonder, God allows us to return to what we once saw as ordinary and worship Him for what He's done. See, He comes to us on the most ordinary days and the most ordinary moments. And he, he comes like a bolt of lightning into our lives. And he, and he brings this into our life. And then the, the, the point is, is that when you, when you wonder, when you open up, when your heart is willing to embrace what God has for you, then what happens is when you, you start to, it starts to just stick out like a giant, memorial of the goodness and the grace of God, the evidence of God is undeniable. And you look back and you're like, this was the most ordinary thing. It was the most mundane every day. And then, boom, something happened. God came into the mix of it. And there was this burning bush and everything changed. And my heart opened up to all this that was going on around me. And now I, I just want to tell people, when I meet people, I want to tell them about my Heavenly Father. I want to tell them about what God's done in my life. I want to tell them, I, hey, and, and suddenly all these people are coming out of the woodwork that have all these problems, and I don't even know them. And they're coming up to me and going, well, I mean, I say, how are you doing? And they start crying, and it's terrible, and all these things are wrong. And you say, but, well, great, because let me tell you about my Heavenly Father. He loves you. He loves you. 
Let me tell you about his proximity. He's right here. He loves you. He knows you. He knows the hairs on your head. He knows things about you you don't know about yourself. And he's got a plan. He's got a purpose. He's got a promise. You see, you notice here it says, I will, I will now turn aside. That's what Moses said. I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Why this bush does not burn. I just want you to turn aside and see this great sight. I want you to see. I mean, I mean come on now. I don't want you to do what everybody else is doing. I don't, want you to, I don't want you to sit there with your pouty face on and go, well, I just don't know why, why God's allowing this to happen to me. I mean, I just don't. I mean, come on. Think that through. Is that the God you serve? Does that make any sense at all? Do you think God took his hand off the wheel? You think he fell asleep? You think he missed that? You think he... Or would the Bible say, uh, no. He's 100% fully aware and in the midst of everything that's going on in your life right now. 100%. So you may not understand it. You may not like it. You may not embrace it. But can we just agree that God's in the midst of it? Yes, we can. And if God's in the midst of it, then hey, there's something to it. So let's wonder. Let's be willing. I'm just saying will. Stop wishing and be willing to go, come on, God. I'm going to look at it and see what's going on. Let me just gaze into this bush. It won't burn up and see what happens. Can you imagine? I'm talking about identity this morning. I, can you just imagine for one second? I wish somehow we could just be some nomad wanderers wandering through the wilderness of nowhere and suddenly we come across this group of people led by this man Moses. We never heard about him. We don't know nothing about him. We're like, what in the heck's going on here? And we see all these people. And so we meet Moses and we go, hey, what's your story? Who are you? And Moses says, I'm nobody. I'm just some guy that was tending sheep in the middle of nowhere at the back of the wilderness. But one day, I wondered. And here I am. Here I am. Now, there's a lot of passages of Scripture that say what I'm about to say right here and show you out of Jeremiah 2. It's, it's all over the Bible. It's all over. But look at what God says. God says, for my people have committed two evils. Now, now, if you know anything about Jeremiah, he's the weeping prophet. He cried all the time. You know why he cried? Not because things were great. He cried because it was bad. He prophesied in a very dark and horrific time in the history of God's people. And so he spent all of his time feeling like a failure. He spent all his time with a bunch of people who wouldn't pay any attention. It was bad. You understand bad? Now, through this prophet at this moment on this day, this is what God says. My people have committed two evils. Now, if you know anything about the book of Jeremiah, you know, what are you talking about? They committed 2,000 evils, and that's just in the last 24 hours. And God said, yeah, all those 2,000 evils, yeah, that's true, but there's two of them that are the worst. There's two of them that are over everything else. All those other evils are there, but there's two evils that have just absolutely crushed them. And what are those evils? Well, the first one is they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. You know what that means? They're disinterested. They're disinterested. Something amazing is right there in front of them, and they thought, oh, who cares? I've seen it all. It doesn't matter. The fountain of living waters is right there. 
The burning bush is right there, and they're just disinterested. See, all these other evils are all predicated by these two things that God wants to point out. That's the cost of being disinterested. And look at the second one. And they've hewn themselves. They've dug for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now listen. You know what this doesn't say? It doesn't say there they are gathered around a hole in the ground staring at it going, wow, look at that hole. That's not what it says. Read it carefully. What have they done? They dug the hole. You got that? They dug a hole to hold water because they were disinterested of the living water that's right past them. So you know what? They're distracted. They're so distracted digging that they don't even realize that what they're disinterested in is the solution to all their problems. Too busy digging. My gosh, if we live in a generation of anything, we live in a generation of people that's disinterested and distracted. Don't let that happen to you. Stop and notice the flowers. Let me tell you, let me tell you some things about Kaylee. See, I'm learning. You know what I did? I, I thought, well, here, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a great dad. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take her somewhere where there's 50 million flowers. I'm going to blow her mind. So I take her. She goes, hmm. I'm like, ho, ho, ho. Look, you got red ones and orange ones and blue ones and green ones. and come, Look, look, look. Smell that. See that? She's like, mm-hmm. I'm like, what just happened here? She, she could care less. Then God taught me something about wonder. She's not amazed when something beautiful is where it's supposed to be. You know what? You know what? I, I realized every flower that I got down on my hands and knees, in my work clothes, in my yard, and stuck my nose into was a flower that grew somewhere it wasn't supposed to be. It wasn't planted there. It just grew there. That's wonder. That's wonder. There's beautiful things in the ordinary moments. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. 